Lord, to change and transform lives. A name that has power to break chains, bring down mountains, break down walls. That's the name, Yeshua. A king who is high and lifted up. A king who is seated on the throne. His name is Yeshua. A friend, a brother. Jesus, we're here for you, Lord. All that we are and all that we do, all that we focused on is for you. 
We were once not a people, Lord. Yeah. We were scattered. Scattered across nations, continents. Disinterested in you. But your love sought us out. We become a people. A people belonging to you. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you for the fragrance of your presence. Thank you, Lord. Don't you just all lift your hands just for a moment. We just want to thank you, Lord. You're the God who heals us. You're the God who makes us whole. The God who empowers us. The God who loves us. We worship you tonight. As one. Jesus. Jesus. One of the worst parts about leadership is sometimes stopping the worship. <laughs> Won't you take a seat? But as you do that, can we just thank the team behind me here? We're not going to stop there. We're going to go to God's Word. And over the years, Heather and I have now lived on three different continents, which has been a great joy. We've visited great cities in the east and the west and the north and right down in the south. And uh, God's really blessed us as we sought His face for the nations and gave ourselves to making Him known across the nations. But nothing, nothing has compared to the people we have met over the years. And it's a treasure, absolute treasure, that we can count friends right across the nations and go to different places and you feel such a heart joining. I got, um, Heather and I got invited to Australia in 2019 for the first time, beautiful country, and uh, went to join our churches there, a few churches that were coming into our church family and um, it was a fantastic time really did enjoy it and on that trip i got the absolute joy of spending a morning with rory watts i thought he was fantastic until i met his wife and then i thought oh now i know his secrets but um it's a joy tonight to welcome Rory to the platform. And uh, Rory, I, I treasure that day, um, what you brought to us. And I don't think you realize at that very early stage how you would shape regions beyond uh, through the words that you brought, the encouragement, but most of all, just your friendship. It's been fantastic. So can we give him a big cheer tonight? Okay, welcome Rory. Reach out a hand to him and he gets himself ready and I'll pray. Father God, we thank you that we're not an organization that's nameless or faceless, Lord, but we're friends. Friends that you brought together. And Lord, I thank you for Rory, Leanne, the family. And I do pray for Rory tonight as he speaks to us and brings your word. I pray your spirit would rest on him and he would know that wonderful inner peace of representing you and speaking on your behalf with you and by you. So we bless him in your wonderful name. Amen. 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 Good. Is this one coming through fine? 
Okay, excellent. Good. What a sure. What a, what a privilege. I don't think I've ever had a hand like that, to be honest. But that's so good. And I do treasure that moment, Steve. Thank you so much. I was actually scrolling through my messages and I came across that image of us sitting in a coffee shop and just reminisced over that day and just looked at what all God had done. But I would love to just backtrack a little bit before and I will speak into that weekend, which was quite a profound weekend, not only for myself personally, but I I do feel it was a defining moment uh, where God was about to set something new in motion. And a couple of years back, about five to six years back, I came across this image which I've been carrying for some time. And for those of you who've spent some time with me, I don't know if we can get it on the screen, there we go, is uh, you might have seen this image, or I may have given you this image, or spoke to this picture at some point, but it's quite an interesting picture. It's a river in Honduras, and what you'll notice at the bottom there is a bridge, which is pretty much pointless at the moment, because the river has shifted and it has moved. But that is a bridge built by Japanese, which is somewhat of an engineering feat for them, because it's the only thing that stood post a storm. I think it was Hurricane Mitch, which swept through that region and literally devastated and wiped out everything. The river moved, but the bridge stood. So the Japanese have images of this in their walls and on their posters of their engineering feat of a bridge which pretty much remains pointless. But God spoke to me through this image, and He started to to share with me about five to six years ago that He was about to change the landscape at His will. And for many of us, what we've done is we've built bridges which were once upon a time very relevant to how we operated. But when God begins to move the river, We have a choice to make whether we go with the river or whether we stay at our monumental bridges or if we move with it. And so this was five to six years ago and then in February 2019 was visiting some friends in Australia and so happened to come across a small gathering of people from a family called Regions Beyond and said, hey, why don't you tag along to a leadership gathering that we've had. And to be honest, what we were looking at there was the lovely beaches of Australia and considering a move. Because I had felt God had called me to the promised land of the gold beaches of Sydney. (laughs) It was either that or Cape Town. And then this wonderful character called Steve Oliver interrupted my plans. And I feel he really interrupted God's plans at that time. But in that moment, at that leadership time, being the little kippy boy that I was, God began to speak to me about this image again. And in that time, I remember on that Saturday, with a group of people, we we came up with something that we felt God had truly spoken to, that He was about to change an era. And this word came on on the back end of a picture where one could see steam coming out of a pot. And the steam coming out of a pot, there was heat and it was beginning to bubble. 
And there was once upon a time when an era completely changed in history. It's when they discovered steam power and within 50 to 100 years the world and the entire landscape and the mode of operation and how the world operated completely changed because they had discovered a power. Sailing became a hobby. And out of this words, we came up with this quintessence of what God was about to do. God is taking us into a new era. It's not a change of season, as it's not something we have experienced before. A new era presents a total change of landscape, which brings about a significant change in the mode of operation. Seasons are recognizable, but those who have experienced them before, and one can find yourself back at the same point. A new era is something that is totally new. Given that word that came out of that room in Australia, and given the image of the bridge, which is something that we've been living with, I feel that we as the church are on the cusp of a new era where a tide is beginning to turn. And if you follow C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a moment where the ice begins to melt. Because Aslan is on the move. Jesus is on the move. And there's a sense almost where there's been an ebb, but now there's beginning to be a flow because the tide has turned. And we need to brace ourselves and be ready for that. We're on the cusp of a new era. A cusp meaning that it's, it's a definitive moment. It's a definitive time where we move from, where we transition from one state to the other. We're living in the midst of that right now. We have a choice. We either shift back to the bridge or we move with what God is doing because Aslan is on the move. And that can get really exciting because we really get excited by vision and we really get pumped up by that and we anticipate and our faith rises because vision inspires us. And all human movement, every advance in human movement and in human, humankind has been a result of somebody's vision. Nelson Mandela had a vision of freedom. And that inspired people. Martin Luther said, I have a dream. It was a vision and it inspired people. So all human advancement is inspired by someone's vision. But that's the fun part, isn't it? The fun part is when we get to see the vision. The fun part is reading about a new era. But do you know that most people who have dreams and visions for their lives, majority of them never realize those visions or fulfill them? Why? The reason is because it's hard work. Walking it out and living it out is very difficult. Having the vision is the fun part, but walking and living it out is incredibly difficult. So we need to be resolute in fulfilling what we feel God has given us in fulfilling the vision of a new era on which we stand on the cusp of. Now I'm not going to try or even dare to tread in the space where I could tell you what that looks like. Because I have absolutely no idea. 
I believe God, as he called Abraham, showed him the stars and called him by faith and made him walk by faith so that he would be reliant on God right throughout the journey. And moment by moment, he will begin to reveal as we follow faithfully with him. However, what I want to do today is just help position us to be able to move forward into this new era on which we stand on the cusp of. And we're going to go to, to Samuel or to Samuel 6. I'm going to read the story of David and draw a few truths from there to help us move into this new era. David was entering into his new era. He's just become the king of Israel. And one of the most magnificent things that David did in his lifetime was not just necessarily defeat Goliath, because that was amazing, and there was a couple of other amazing things that he did do. But one of the greatest things that David achieved was he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. It was an amazing thing. The Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence and the life of God. And David, at the outset of his new era, was dead set on bringing God into the center of the community, of the family, of the church, of the people of God. He felt if he was going to move into all that God had promised him, he wanted to keep God at the very center of his community. And so it should be with, with us. Is we cannot make this about regions beyond or a movement. It's got to be about God, Christ, and Christ alone. And He has to be at the very center of what we're doing. And we've got to keep Him there. And David was resolute in getting God back into the center of the community. And not out on the peripheries. I'm reminded of John 15 where Jesus tells His disciples, You can do nothing without me. You will wither out and die. He is the nourishing sap that flows through us and actually is the one who bears fruit in our lives. And we have to keep God at the very center of our community. And one of the ways in which we, we keep God at the center of all that we do is through worship. And so what David did, or his intention, and what he did when he eventually got the ark into the center of the community, he put it in an open tent so that everyone could behold it. It wasn't hidden away somewhere. And he brought God, the ark of the covenant, right into the center. And then what he created, he got thousands and thousands of singers to sing for 24 hours a day, 7 days a week for 33 years. That's what he set up. That's how he kept God at the center of the community. That is radical worship. And the way that we keep God at the center of our community is through our worship, but not just in song, but through sacrificial lives and worship-filled lives in our day-to-day -day operations. So he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the center of the community. But the wonderful thing about the Ark of the Covenant, it was simple. It wasn't anything so elaborate, but it was so glorious. And sometimes I feel what we tend to do is overcomplicate matters in life and in church life. And we focus so much on the peripheries of things and we lose the essence of what God is doing in and among us. 
And we have, as people, tend to overcomplicate life and the gospel itself and church life. I feel we need to be reminded of the question that Stephen asked in Acts 7. Where he says, God does not dwell in houses built by human hands. And the question to you and I is, what kind of house will you build for me? Where will my resting place be? But then he goes on to say, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Because in this era, God has decided to dwell in our hearts. He does not dwell in houses made by human hands. It means God does not dwell in buildings. Although buildings are wonderful and they do serve a purpose for us, and they help facilitate our worship, but we must always be reminded that God dwells deep in the hearts of His people. That's what makes the church so powerful in its simplicity. It's the church's simplicity and the people of God's simplicity that makes it so powerful because you can never suppress it or squash it. Because it lives in the hearts of its people. So you can shipwreck Paul, but all he does is create revival on the island of Malta. You can bite him with a viper, but then he'll bring about healing. You can put him in prison, but then he'll write letters because it lives in his heart. Letters which shape our lives thousands and thousands and thousands of years later. The gospel is so buoyant you will never suppress it. It is irrepressible. But when we make it about buildings and complicated, we start to lose the simplicity of it. And so one is we've got to keep God at the center of our community. First and foremost, but we need to continually be simplifying and say, what are we really about? So the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the center of the community ends in a really happy one. But it actually didn't begin that way. And in 2 Samuel 6, we'll pick up the story and we'll read from verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000 men with them. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of the gods on a new cart and bought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of the God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it, and David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. So here you have David, who gets for himself a new ox cart. Something really flashy. New building, maybe. New worship team, new preachers. Gets himself a really flashy. You can imagine the fanfare. His intentions are really good. His motives are pure. But he's not following God's prescribed way in order to move the ark. He's been a bit presumptuous in his actions. 
And as he's moving this, he's got this new ox cart, which really represents a new, snappy, flashy way in order to bring back the presence of God. And it's not going to be some new, flashy, snappy way in which we're going to usher in the presence of God back into the life of our community. Where we will experience Him in a way that maybe some of us have never experienced before. Oxen represent strength, natural strength. The name Uzzah, if you look up its meaning, means strength. Just as much as it's not going to be in some snappy new way that we're going to develop in order to move into this new era, it's certainly not going to be by our own natural strength in any way whatsoever. You see God's point here with the oxen and Uzzah. It's not going to be by your strength. It's not going to be by your might. But it's going to be by the power of my spirit. This is not going to be something that is natural. It's going to be something that is supernatural. Beyond what we are capable of in our own strength. And it won't be by our own might. But it's going to be by the power of God's spirit. And we're not going to be able to determine what that looks like for us. Paul would write in the book of Corinthians, he would say, I did not come to you with wise and persuasive words, but in a demonstration of the power of God, of the Spirit of God. So that their faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but rest on the power of God. I long for those days. I long for the days where we don't have to persuade people with wise and persuasive words. I long for the days when we can move in a demonstration of God's power. That people's faith would rest on the power of God, having a conscious knowledge of God, but just not just knowing about God, but having met Christ Himself. I find I, I tell people a lot about God. Trying to persuade them and to convince them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How much more powerful is it if we just introduce Jesus through a demonstration of His power working in and through us into the lives of others? And I think what we're reaching for as people and as leaders is to be able to convince people with our wise and persuasive words. But I really do believe there will be a supernatural power, even in our childish and foolish ways. Paul had the intellect, but there was a power that was residing in and through him that touched the lives of others around him. And that is something that we should be reaching for, such as the power and the presence of God when it touches other people's lives. And then comes a devastating moment. David with his new ox cart, his new way, good intentions, 
And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of the irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. What a moment. And imagine all the fanfare, 30,000 onlookers, symbols, timbers, all the worship going on. David really happy with his new ox cart, and then it hits a pothole, and then Uzzah reaches out, and next minute, Uzzah's, and then you just hear the murmur going through the 30,000, what just happened, and everyone's looking at Uzzah, stone dead. I think what we need to nurture back in the life of our community is a reverence for God once again. A reverence for Christ. One thing you see in the book of Acts continuously is you see there was a fear of the Lord. There was a fear of the Lord. There was a reverence for God. And every now and again, God will remind us of who He is. How powerful He is. How holy He is. How just He is. And you see, what we really need to lay hold of is that God is is terrifying, but He is also merciful. I wonder how those disciples felt that day when He calmed the hurricane in the boat. And it said there was an immense fear that came upon them because they suddenly realized who was in the boat with them. That God hates evil but loves people. That God is just and will punish wickedness and evil and sin, but He will still extend grace to sinners. When Isaiah encountered just a taste of the glory of God, he became totally undone. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom for us. And it's something we need to pursue in our own lives and have moments where we pursue and have a keen reverence for God. Worship helps facilitate that with us as we exalt Him. But it's the Holy Spirit who creates a reverence in our hearts for God. Jonathan Edwards would write about the excellencies of Christ. And in Him, what you will find is excellencies that won't, you, you won't normally find in the same character. That He is, is sovereign, yet He's, he's still submissive. That He's all-powerful and omnipotent, but yet He's humble. And how does that exist in the same character? That he's tough, but yet tender. And all these excellencies exist in one character that should actually not exist together at all. Boldness and humility. But he's he's the lion, but he's also the lamb. He's the Lord. Jesus Christ. He's the Lord to which every name will bow. 
He is Jesus who is with us and for us. God's Emmanuel to be with us, but he's also the Christ who laid down his life. And the amazing thing about these excellencies that Jonathan Edwards writes about, which are normally shouldn't be bundled into one person, is when we come to faith in Christ, these excellencies get reproduced in us so that we become like Christ. Such is the power of God when we come to faith in Him in humility. But out of that as well is besides nurturing a keen reverence for God and a fear of the Lord which needs to come back into our community, which will help guide us with wise decisions, is what we learn from Uzzah touching the ark is when we behave with boldness, which is good, and we must have boldness, but when our boldness is not coupled with or held in tension with humility, obedience, and submission, we actually end up hurting people. And I've learned that the hard way. Being rash with boldness, with some innovative new idea, because I like imagination, but many of those new ideas in bold moves have actually not been held in tension with obedience to God's prescribed ways and in submission to those and in humility. And that's when we end up hurting people. But you would think from here, after Uzzah gets struck down, David would think, with 30,000 onlookers, a little bit humiliated maybe, maybe a little bit misunderstood. 1 Chronicles 13 says he was angry. Maybe some of us have tried some initiatives, some of them have failed, we've been bold, we've stepped out. It's failed, but we're feeling a little bit humiliated, a little bit angry, a little bit misunderstood. Why, God? We're trying hard for you. My intentions were good. Motives were good, just like David. And you'd think David, what he would do from here is, well, just back off. Let's leave it where it is. And what they do do is they take it to Obed-Edom's house. I wonder how that went. Many of the guys, he's looking for volunteers. No eye contact here because nobody's going to move that. But they do take it to his house very carefully. And David spends three months. He is resolute. He is resolute in bringing the presence of God back into the community. And we need to be resolute in our endeavors to bring back the presence of God. Is to not quit and to not give up, but to go back to God's prescribed ways. To go back to His Word. And David discovered that he needed to use the Levites to move the ark. He needed to move the ark with the Levites. And he discovered an ancient path. And this is where I think perhaps, perhaps, our new era is not so new after all. But more a discovery of an ancient path that we've lost sight of. And it's so simple. It's so simple. David is resolute and he goes back. Let's read how he goes back.
David asked, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord was blessed. The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Some debate about that. When they, when they had taken six steps, they sacrificed. I mean, that's from me to Wes, practically. Six steps they sacrificed. Now, there's two different interpretations of this. Some say it was only after they've taken six steps and then they sacrificed. And some interpreters would go, whenever they took six steps, they sacrificed. But that's a lot of sacrifice. But I do believe that if David could set up radical worship 24-7 for 33 years, it came with radical sacrifice. It came with radical sacrifice. And since he had 30,000 onlookers, I don't think it's that radical or too far-fetched to believe that he sacrificed almost every six steps, which will equate to about 3,000 cattle. But what it would also create is a trail of blood from where he was through all the way into Jerusalem. To bring back the presence of God is going to take a great sacrifice. And many of us go, oh man, I want to sacrifice. But you know the word, it will take a great sacrifice. David is pointing to the true David. The true David being Jesus. And the only way we find the presence of God back in the midst of our community is when we follow his trail of blood up a mountain called Golgotha. And there has been a great sacrifice. Now we don't have to slaughter 3,000 cattle in order to bring in the presence of God. But Jesus Christ has left a trail of blood representing a great sacrifice which took place on a hill called Golgotha, which opened the windows of heaven and created a great causeway upon which angels ascend and descend, and upon which the Spirit of God can come into our lives and empower us to be able to live a life in such a way as He lived. Not only bringing, transforming our lives, but working in and through us into the lives of others so that we may engage people as Paul did and come in a demonstration of the Spirit's power as opposed to trying to persuade them with wise and persuasive words. You might ask, well, how do I do that? And how do I begin to do that? Well, it's about taking small steps, and I want to introduce you to a friend of mine as we close. I think this is where Seth got his hairdo from. 
This is a Polish Prime Minister. His name is Ignace Pardonewski. That's my best Polish. He was an, an amazing man, but he was a Prime Minister, but also he was a great pianist. And one day he was having a concert. And everybody was lined up and there was a, a, a mother there with her young child who had managed to get seats very close to the front. The child was five to six years old. And everybody was in a, a buzz before the concert was about to start. On the stage was the grand piano waiting for Ignace to come out and play. And just as they dim the lights, the mother looks for her young child and he is gone. Nowhere to be found. The lights go down, the spotlight comes on. Young mother is panicking because she's lost her child. And in that moment, bing, 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 bing. There he was at the piano, true story. Spotlight on him, but just carried on insignificantly. And you would think, as he's playing, he's got some piano lessons going, twinkle, twinkle, little, little star. And you'd think, the grand pianist, this is his concert. What's this child doing at my piano? And he comes out, and you think thinking, this young mother's going, oh, no, this, he wants to crawl under a chair, run away. And all of a sudden, he comes behind this young boy. And I don't know whether he plays a bass part with the left hand or the right hand, but what he does is he comes behind him, and he plays with the one hand, the bass part. And the boys came to him, little star. And he, he starts playing a bass part, but he whispers something so significant in the little boy's ear. He whispered in that little boy's ear, he said, Don't quit, keep playing. Renowned words, don't quit, keep playing. And then with the right hand, he put the right hand out there and he played a running obligato. I thought that was an ice cream, but the fact of the matter is apparently it's a musical term. And he starts to play and the little boy is playing his twinkle, twinkle, little star. But Ignace Pardonewski comes around and the grand piano starts to play this incredible tune, encompassing his little twinkle star. And by the end of it, the audience gives a standing ovation for the sound that came out and how he made it appear. My point B, two things, don't quit, keep playing. No matter how insignificant you feel your tune is. But the key factor is God, the great grand pianist, is when he comes into our lives, will play in and around us and turn our twinkle star into something that is so significant and powerful. We stand before you humbly. We stand before you longing for the presence, your presence, to be in our midst, first and foremost, and above all. Help us, O oh God, to keep it simple. Whether we two, ten, hundreds or thousands, help us to keep the main thing the main thing. 
Help us to be resolute. Help us to keep playing. But most of all, God, we know it's your tune in and around us that will make all the difference, not only in our lives, but what comes off our lives. We pray for your spirit to rest upon us. We know that it's not by our might and not by our own natural strength, but by the supernatural power that we will move into the future with you. We thank you for the words that you've given us. We pray, Lord, as we move boldly, we would still be obedient to your prescribed ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pondering on some stuff, right? Thinking about, hey, it's deep.